Every place that I've had opportunity to preach in the last several months, I've chosen to work from the center section of the Gospel of Matthew. So I was here for three Sunday evenings in uh, August and talked with you from Matthew 13 on the parable of the soils, talked uh, from Matthew 14 about uh, Jesus and Peter walking on water, and from Matthew 17, uh, the great transfiguration story. And we come back to the center of this section again tonight, this time from Matthew 15. In Matthew 15, the first half of the story is Jesus explaining to folks how they have distorted the various laws that had been given to them in the Old Testament. And then at verse 21, we have a whole different direction go that is going and happening here. And I want to read from verse 21 of chapter 15. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him, crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is suffering terribly from demon possession. Jesus did not answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him, Send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. He replied, It's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. Yes, Lord, she said, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered, Woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted, and her daughter was healed from that very hour. Jesus left there and went along the Sea of Galilee. Then he went up into the hills and sat down. Great crowds came to him, bringing the lame, the blind, the crippled, the dumb, and many others, and laid them at his feet, and he healed them. The people were amazed when they saw the dumb speaking, the crippled made well, the lame walking, and the blind seeing. And they praised the God of Israel. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's begin with a bit of geography. If you can either look up or picture a map of Israel in the days of Jesus. At the bottom of the country, you have that section called Judea, most prominently having Jerusalem and Bethlehem in it, and then stacked above it to the north, the section called Samaria, stacked above that, the area called Galilee, with uh, the Sea of Galilee, and with Nazareth in it. And then the country ends. 
But if you keep going, and you do so out at the Mediterranean Sea, you come to a city called Tyre, and nearby a city called Sidon. Not far from where our world seems to be falling apart right now in Syria. And this story is about Jesus going way up there. It seemed like most of the time he either was down in the area of Jerusalem or he was up near his home area of Nazareth in the Sea of Galilee. But on this occasion, on this occasion, he went even farther to the north. He withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And then you get this very, very curious story that we've just read. I do want to talk to you tonight about great faith, but I want to take it apart and talk to you not in the way that the creed did, but in the way that I see this passage doing it, four different pieces or four different angles to look at the story. And the vocabulary, I guess, doesn't really come out of the story itself. The first thing I want to talk to you about is the fact that great faith is objective. That it is, has an object. It is pointed in a direction. It's not just faith in faith. It's not faith in something intangible. Uh, it's not, as a woman said to me a few days ago, in a moment of grief, she said, well, now, we're not a very religious family, um, and, and my own religion is made up of, you know, and when she was through, it was pretty vague. That's not what we're talking about. Great faith isn't a vague kind of faith in something. Great faith is objective in that it has an object. Well, it's faith in a person. And here we have this woman from way up there coming out, and when she gets to Jesus, she says, Lord, Son of David. Now, various people use the word Lord in various ways. They didn't all mean the same thing. Sometimes it's little more than uh, I, I often use the word sir when I'm speaking to somebody. I think that's a nice way to address them, but it, it doesn't tell you very much. And sometimes that's all the word Lord meant in that setting. Sometimes, though, particularly if you were Jewish, it meant Messiah. Messiah is coming. The one we're waiting for is coming. The Lord is coming. Now, if a Jew were then going on and said not only Lord, but said Son of David, oh, this is definitely a title for the Messiah. This is saying, you are Son of David, you are the Christ, the Messiah. That's if a Jewish person would say, but not this woman, what does she mean? She's a heathen, a Gentile, she's, she's not Jewish. What'd she mean? And the answer is, I don't know what she meant. What did she know? If it was just a name that she picked up, 
Maybe she really didn't know who this Jesus was. Maybe she just heard that he might be able to help her in some way. Or maybe, in a way that I don't understand, she really did recognize him as the Christ, the Messiah. I think Jesus hesitated to help her, partly because he wanted to find out what I'd like to know. What did she really believe? Was she just talking in vague terms, or did she have content to her faith? Was she a Christian, a Christ one, or was she just a woman with a very serious problem? That is, did she have a great faith in Jesus the Christ, or was she just a needy person? Lord, Son of David, have mercy on me. I mean, and the, the, the need was great, wasn't it? My daughter is suffering terribly from demon possession. But Jesus responds. Well, the disciples tried to get rid of her and said, Jesus, send her away. But then, then Jesus responds at 24 and says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. I, I, I'm not for her. I'm for Jewish folks. I'm for the folks in Judea and, and in Galilee, not people up there in Tyre and Sidon. And, well, clearly his mission on earth was restricted to Jewish people, wasn't it? Almost everything he did was in relation to Jewish folks. Very seldom did he help a Gentile. And clearly here he wants her to realize who he is, and what he's come to do. And it still feels strange, doesn't it? Just, just tell her, I'm not sent for her. Well, anybody who's got some familiarity with the Old Testament or with church history will know that when Messiah was to come, he was indeed to come for more than the children of Abraham. He was to come for all people from all nations. You get those hints in the Old Testament of that. Not just Jews. And yet, even though the Old Testament anticipated he would, he would help everybody, while he's here on earth, he helps almost exclusively Jewish people. And the ministry broadened really only after his death. So, 24... I'm just here for Jewish folks. And at 25, she comes and kneels before him. Lord, help me. She's not going to be deterred. She is so concerned about her need that she wants help. And great faith is objective, that it is an object, and she's figured out that the object is Jesus, and that she needs to somehow get through to him, that she has a great faith in him and his ability to help in this difficult moment. Hmm. Well, here we are, what, 2,000 years later, and nothing's changed in that regard, right? Right? Only the Christ 
is fit to be the object of our faith. Some vague faith that everything will be all right, that won't cut it. That's not what the Bible talks about. Some American religion that is so comprehensive and so vague just doesn't make it. Great faith is faith in a great person, Jesus. And great faith is not extinguished by the hard things that Jesus says. Because he does say some hard things in these Gospels. The woman believed in Jesus, even though his words seemed to be pushing her away. We need to hear all this, because we need to have a great faith toward Jesus. Second observation, great faith is not only objective, it is subjective, not in the sense of being emotional, but in the sense that there is somebody here behind it. There is somebody who has that great faith. It has a subject, it's not abstract. And so when we say the creeds, we say we believe or I believe, we start with here, I, a person, I am a subject, I am the one who has this faith. And great faith is found in one person toward another person in the New Testament. Well, let's talk about her need, because she's obviously motivated. She has, boy, she'll do anything. Verse 22 says that her daughter has a demon. And not only has a demon, but is suffering terribly because of that demon. That she had a need, and though it's the daughter's need, therefore the woman had a need. She had to have help for that daughter. Now I'm reading this tonight, having last night been across the street at a play called A Miracle Worker. Deeply powerful story about Helen Keller and the woman who was able to help her. And throughout the evening as I sat there watching, I watched Helen's parents in different ways expressing their pain, their agony, the fact that they had a daughter who could not see and who could not hear and therefore could not speak and their daughter had a terrible need and they had a terrible need and they expressed it in a variety of ways. There was no possibility of Helen Keller taking care of herself. There's no possibility here of this child taking care of herself. <sighs> Really, only the needy have great faith. If we have no needs, then faith isn't very important either, is it? It's when we are aware that we can't help ourselves and that we realize we can't help ourselves and that we must reach out for help because the things that are broken in our lives can't be fixed by us. And so this great faith starts in a woman who is aware of her own brokenness and her daughter's brokenness. And she comes to Jesus. And at verse 24, he says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. 
at a minimum, he's implying that she's on the outside, that she can't expect help from him. And in fact, in Jewish eyes, she was the worst of the worst. Of all the Gentile trash, you couldn't get much worse than she was. Those Canaanites, and you can identify her with that, you know, the Canaanites had been cursed by God when God first brought the Israelites into the promised land. In the slang of the day, she was a Gentile dog. Now, a little disclaimer. I know that there are 70 million dogs in the United States. And the chances are that includes parents here in this audience who have dogs and love your dogs. The dogs you're talking about and the dogs in the New Testament, forget it, they're not the same. I don't think you can ever find in the Bible a dog spoken of as a house parent, a house pet, or a friend. That, that's just not the way they treated dogs. Dogs are often spoken of in the Bible in a derogatory way. It was no compliment for her to be called a dog. Hmm. Verse 26, it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. Now, if you'd been the woman at that point, I'm betting you wouldn't have stayed around any longer. That would have been the end of the conversation. I didn't come here to be insulted. Forget it. I'm out of here. But this woman obviously knew herself, and she accepted her position. She didn't argue with him. Her honest evaluation of her own status was a part of her great faith. The word I would use to describe this is the word humility. She was humble. A quality that the Bible all the way through recommends, compliments. Psalm 138.6, Though the Lord is exalted, he looks upon the lowly, but the haughty man he notes from a distance. Remember the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, and the tax collector was way off, didn't even come down close when he prayed. The parable of the prodigal son, who when he came back, he said to his father, I'm not worthy to be your son. The centurion who said to Jesus, I'm not worthy to have you come to my home. This humility that this woman shows is a key ingredient in great faith. St. Augustine says, if you'll ask me concerning the precepts of the Christian religion, I would answer firstly, and secondly, and thirdly, and forever, humility. So great faith is not only objective toward Jesus, great faith is subjective, humbly, knowing who I am, but I am the one who has faith in that Jesus. 
Third observation. It really comes out clearly in this story. Great faith is persistent. Objective, subjective, persistent. This woman just can't be pushed away. She refuses to get discouraged. She gets rebuffed three times in this short story. At verse 23, he says, the disciples say, send her away. <laughs> and Jesus says, I will send only to the lost sheep of Israel. At 26, he says, it's not right to take the children's bread and give it to the dogs. Three times. Now, it's really unusual for Jesus to rebuff people. So this, this whole story just doesn't feel quite right when you hear it. It doesn't seem to fit Jesus. And yet we're in no position to second-guess him on the way he treated this woman. He knew what he was doing, even if we didn't. And she was helped when it was all over. You see, weak faith is easily discouraged. But great faith perseveres. And this woman had persistent great faith. You may know enough of the story of St. Augustine to know that he was not a good guy in his young adult years. He was far from Christian. But it said of his mother, as he went from bad to worse, she prayed day and night and knocked relentlessly on doors for help. She sounds just like this woman. And, of course, you know that eventually he was converted and became a great saint. It's in the very heart of discouragement that great faith finds encouragement. And so she says, in effect, to Jesus, you call me a dog? So I am. But dogs get fed. <laughs> Martin Luther, in commenting on this, says, was that not a master stroke? She snares Christ in his very own words. It takes great faith to debate with Jesus, the Messiah. And so this is an amazing discussion. A woman who knew herself and was properly humble persistently went after God's Messiah to get the help that she needed. And in this story, it's the greatness of the Christ and it's the greatness of her need that make her persevere in the face of all kinds of discouragement. Well, the fourth, the last observation. And let me admit right up front, this one will be easy to misunderstand. My fourth observation is that great faith is successful. It's objective, it's subjective, it's persistent, and it is successful. At the end of the story, verse 28, Woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that very hour. Jesus gave her what she wanted. <clears throat> the daughter was healed. Remember the Old Testament story in Genesis of Jacob, uh, not one of our favorite heroes. Jacob one night wrestling with an angel. 
And you would think that kind of wrestling match would be over in 28 seconds. It went on all night, right? Jacob would not let him go. Jacob persisted. And Jacob ended up with a new name, Israel. I think sometimes they say Israel means prince with God. Other times Israel means striver with God. <coughs> Israel, Jacob, would not let that angel go. And eventually I think you'd have to say that, angel, that Jacob won the match. Well, the predominant picture in the Bible, the picture you see most often, is a picture that God is eager to give us what we need and what we desire. But then there's this second picture, this troublesome picture. We can't ignore this other one that suggests that sometimes we must be persistent until God gives us that good thing that we're after. And so I say great faith is successful, but it won't always be success as we tend to measure it. The perspective, the human perspective on success and God's perspective on success sometimes don't see to be the same thing. What we think of as success sometimes isn't before God. And what God pronounces success doesn't feel too successful to us. So there's a piece of this that is still troublesome. But I think it's safe to say from the passage that great faith will be successful in God's eyes. Today, a lot of Christians don't seem to be very successful. And boy, do we hear a lot about the church failing, particularly in this country. But we must be careful to see that the present weakness of Christianity as we identify it in the United States it's not God's fault. We, we dare not suggest that our struggles are because God has withdrawn and deserted us. Now, the problem, I think, is that this great faith, at least in our nation, is often missing. For many, the object of faith is fuzzy. I've been thinking about this a lot recently because... It was about a month ago that I went in for my annual eye checkup, and as soon as they flashed that test up on the wall, you know, where you can read the big things, I knew I was in trouble. And before I got out of there, they were saying, okay, when can we schedule your cataract surgery? You're, you've changed dramatically from a year ago. And, of course, I thought I was okay until I went in there, but now for the last month, you're pretty fuzzy tonight. You're not real sharp out there this evening. The problem is, great faith is often missing because the object of faith is fuzzy to us. The Christ of the Bible gets distorted. People place their confidence in a pseudo-Messiah, even an anti-Christ. Because many today are too self-confident 
and to content, and again, particularly in our culture. We don't really see ourselves as people in need. And then some of us are just not persistent. We offer the prayer, we go through the motions, but we easily get discouraged. Now, I don't want this sermon to be a downer. So as I come to a conclusion, let me say, this is a most wonderful story. It is a great story of Jesus responding to a great need and doing what she wanted. And that's what we should aim for, is the kind of faith that that woman had. I don't know where it came from. I don't know how she learned about Jesus, but she did. Why should we be content with a little faith? (laughs) The Holy Spirit put this incident in the Bible so that we can learn from it. And indeed, the whole Bible has been given to us that through it we might see a great Christ who is worthy of our faith. So we have the Bible so that we can see Jesus. We're exhorted to use the Scripture so that we can see Jesus. May this be a week where our faith is strengthened where we are persistent and where in God's eyes we are successful because we are focusing on the Jesus who is worthy of a great faith. Now what happened after the story? I want to close with those last verses again. Jesus left there, went along the Sea of Galilee. He went into the hills and sat down. Great crowds came to him, bringing the lame the blind, the crippled, the dumb, and many others, and laid them at his feet, and he healed them. The people were amazed when they saw the dumb speaking, the crippled made well, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they praised the God of Israel. That's the call to us tonight, to praise the God of Israel.